I talked to a former colleague of mine and I asked him about this opportunity and what he thought about it. And he told me, go do it. Because he said, it looks like travel 15 years ago, where in travel, you had a lot of people that bought travel through offline insurance agents. And then we saw over the last 15, 20 years that that shifted online. And now most people don't even think about going to an offline travel agent. Insurance shopping, particularly auto insurance shopping and home insurance shopping, a lot of it's done through offline insurance agents. And we were seeing that progression of more and more people going online to shop. What the pandemic really changed is it accelerated that transition where no longer people were going into physical insurance agencies because people just weren't leaving their houses. So they became much more comfortable shopping for insurance online. Hi everyone, it's Julie Verhage Greenberg here with your Tux Time podcast from FinTech Today where we talk about all things FinTech. And today I am joined by Keith Melnick, CEO of The Zebra, an Austin-based company. So I am super excited to have them on and they play in the InsurTech space, an area that we haven't covered as much on the podcast. We have had Metro Mile on here before, but it's an area of FinTech that I feel like doesn't get quite as much attention as others. So Keith, I'm excited to dive into this with you. Thanks, Julie. I appreciate you having me on. So you were, you, as you mentioned, were not a co-founder of the company. What made you want to come into you know, the InsurTech space? Tell me a little bit about your background. So I was part of the team that started Kayak. So I was at Kayak for almost 14 years, kind of from the inception of the idea through uh, not being able to figure out how the business model would work to getting it to work and kind of through that whole process was lucky enough to go through an IPO and a sale of the price line and a, a few other things. Um, and I, like I said, I, when I started the company, there were eight of us. Uh, and then when I left, there were thousands or a thousand or more part of Priceline. Um, and I realized that I always enjoyed the, the part of the company I enjoyed the most was around 50 people when the, kind of the business model was going a little bit, but we were really getting into that growth phase. Uh, and I felt like after 14 years at Kayak, I had one more in me. Uh, it was just a matter of finding that right opportunity. And um, if you had asked me at the time what I was looking for, it would have been a company kind of at 50 people uh, with a market that was big, growing. There was a big opportunity there uh, and had started to establish themselves, but really needed to figure things out. Um, and at the same time, uh, Excel, the VC firm uh, that's based in the world, but headquartered in Palo Alto, had led the Series C in Kayak. Um, and it was always close with them. Uh, they were definitely uh, one of my favorite VC partners. So I kind of contended I'd love to go work for another Excel company. And uh, one of the partners there called me and said they were looking at a company in Austin that called themselves the Kayak of Auto Insurance. Would I go take a look at them? Uh, so I went down to Austin and looked at the market opportunity. Uh, and I knew nothing about insurance. I knew search, I knew travel, knew nothing about insurance. Uh, and when I looked at the market, it, it, it all made sense. It's a gigantic market. I figured it was estimated it was like 10 times as big as travel. Um, highly fragmented, much more fragmented than I ever would have thought. Uh, I think like most people, you see the commercials, you think there's maybe five or six big insurance companies um, when there's actually hundreds. So really fragmented. Um, I don't think it surprises many people uh, when you say that there's a lot of consumer dissatisfaction with the current process of uh, searching for and finding insurance. Um, and so I looked at it and said, I think there's a really big market opportunity. Uh, so I went back to Excel and said, looks great. You know, I definitely think you should invest there. There's a lot of things executionally I would do different. Um, and they came back and talked to the two co-founders at the Zebra at the time and came back and said, great, we'll make an investment, but we want you to come along and run the company. Um, so that's kind of how I made the jump. I looked at it and thought, great opportunity. The company was about 50 people. Like everything I described I was looking for, 
except for the one thing it was based in Austin. Nothing against Austin. I just I live in Connecticut and I thought, okay, this one could be a tough one. Um, but so I decided to give it give it a shot anyway. It sounds like it ticked a lot of boxes for you then. Explain a little bit what the zebra does. I, I assume there's a lot of people listening that are familiar with kayak. Um, explain what the zebra does similarly for the insurance industry though. I mean, and that's uh, when I don't have a lot of time and I just try to like quickly do it, that is kind of it. it is you could say it's like kayak, uh, but for insurance. Um, but in, And if you step back, the premise is really the same, is we're, we're trying to help people navigate all of the different choices and sources of information they have when they're trying to find insurance. Same thing we were doing at, at Kayak when they were trying to find travel. Um, so a consumer will give us uh, basic information that we ask for, and then we'll go out and get information from all of our different insurance partners and present to the consumer the, the, what, the best options for them and give them a list of options and give them some information on why it's the best option. And then once they identify which option that, they, that they're most interested in, they want to buy, then we, we try and help them buy it, which will depend on the carriers and the carrier's business model. So that's the heart of what we do. We're, we're a search engine that really helps consumers find the best insurance product for them. Now, there's obviously more than one type of insurance out there. There's life insurance, there's health insurance, there's car insurance, there's home insurance. Like, Which ones do you guys operate in? Yeah, we only have 20 minutes, so we can't go through all of them. <laughs> uh, we are primarily auto. That's, our, that's kind of the, the milk in the back of the grocery store for us. Um, we also offer home insurance, and we bundle those two together. That's where we are right now. Um, we do have access to renter's insurance that through some of our partners and life insurance, um, we have some plans in the work to get into pet insurance too, but primarily it's auto and then home right now. So speaking of those two fronts, like those are two things that saw huge changes during the pandemic, right? Like everybody wanted to buy a home, moved to the suburbs and yeah. everyone wanted to buy a car. So yeah. how did that impact you guys? You raised a funding round fairly recently, right? We did. We closed on one uh, at the end of March, uh, $150 million round, uh, which put us over a billion dollars in valuation. So we got that you know, that wonderful unicorn status, although I've moved on to that. We've got lots of stuff to do here. Um, you know, for, for us, the, the biggest thing about the pandemic wasn't so much that more people were buying cars or buying houses. Um, if I step back and, and we talk about, as we talked about before, when I took the job, um, I talked to a former colleague of mine who is at Priceline, who now runs Vroom. And I asked him about this opportunity um, and what he thought about it. And he told me, go do it, because uh, he said, it looks like travel 15 years ago, where in travel, you had a lot of people that bought travel through offline insurance agents. And then we saw over the last 15, 20 years that that shifted online. And now, you know, you don't, most people don't even think about going to an offline travel agent. They do all of their shopping online. Um, insurance shopping, particularly auto insurance shopping and home insurance shopping, that's all the same thing. Uh, a lot of it's done through offline insurance agents. And we were seeing that progression of more and more people going online to shop. I think what the pandemic really changed is it accelerated that transition by, I guess, about five years, where no longer people were going into physical insurance agencies because people just weren't leaving their houses. So they become much more, became much more comfortable with shopping for insurance online. Um, so that really accelerated the shift on the consumer side. Um, on the supplier side and our relationships with carriers, the, the big change there was they were looking for more online channels to access consumers. Um, and I've always contended we have one of the best performing channels for them. It was just a matter of getting them to engage with us and try it and see what we have to offer. Uh, and, and I think it accelerated our carrier development, our business relationship, same thing by about five years. So that's where the pandemic really helped us. 
How did that impact your top and bottom line then too? And how do you think about that moving forward? Since obviously, you know, payments is an area I think of with COVID that saw a massive impact and people keep wondering how things will sort of normalize after that. How do you think about it? Yeah, well, we saw we saw a bunch of shifts that impacted our top line and bottom line. Some of them are uh, systemic that will consist continue. Um, a couple were just, uh, we were fortuitous because of the pandemic. And so the one where we were for really um, was a nice coincidence, if you will, if I, you know, I, I actually have trouble saying anything nice about the pandemic, but our, our business did well, so it's okay. Um, one of them was media rates went way down. You had the travel companies pulling out of a lot of their TV advertising, things like that. So the rates there went way down. And so one of the things we discovered, which actually impacts our business longer term, but we really got a bump from last year, was that acquiring traffic through brand building efforts and really building the Zebra as a brand and driving more organic traffic is really beneficial to us. Um, and if I step back and think about what at the heart what the Zebra is supposed to do is it takes an unqualified consumer user, we give them some information, we help them identify what they want, and then we give them off to a carrier partner. So we've created value through that process. And the more we can get somebody in organically who hasn't been through part of this process before, the more we work we can do and the better qualified that consumer will be. And we saw that. Our organic traffic, when somebody comes in that way, um, it's the highest performing traffic. Our product does the work. Our carriers uh, get the most benefit from it. And we really discovered that during the pandemic. Now, unfortunately, um, well, fortunate for the travel companies, but unfortunate for us, they're picking up again, so media rates are getting more expensive, so it's becoming more competitive on the brand side. So we got a nice bump from that, but I think philosophically it changed the way we approach acquiring traffic and shifted out of a lot of the performance channels and really leaned into the, the organic and the brand driving channels. Um, the other thing that happened was, again, I talked about the carrier partners leaning into and, and um, identifying our model. Um, I think we really proved to them the value of our business model so they've leaned in, they continue to lean in, which really also helps our economics. So you put those things together. So we elevated our top line by getting more traffic in, better quality traffic, monetizes better. The cost of it was really um, great last year because of the media rates. And we had more carriers participating so we could actually have a more competitive environment. And all of that helped us to really ex exponentially grow our revenue without growing costs at the same time. So we, we more than doubled. We were, we were about 35 million in revenue in 2019. Um, we were about 78 last year. Um, at the same time, uh, kind of at the peak of all of these things coming together in August and September of last year, we actually turned profitable, um, which I say was somewhat accidental. It was, we weren't planning on being profitable. You know, we're, we're investing in growth. It's part of the reason I went out and, and raised this $150 million. I'm not trying to run a profitable company yet. I mean, that's always a goal. I don't believe in running at a loss forever, but we're really investing in growth. But it really proved that the business model works. Yeah, and it's nice when it just accidentally happens like that, right? Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> and you know I've I've I've, uh, I've done a good job throwing us back into the red, uh, somewhat intentionally <laughs> as we back into to brand building. Uh, but it's nice to know that the underlying unit economics of the business work. And I'm sure your investors are very happy to have that proof point as well. It helps me in my conversations with them when I'm losing money. That lucky look, I can throw it back into profitability if we need to. Just to be clear, though, too, like you are an insure tech company, but you are not actually writing insurance policies yourselves. Correct. Yep. And uh, nor do I want to. Um, that's 
that's not where I see us adding value in the, the, the business model or in the business chain. Um, you know, and I don't have underwriting expertise. Um, I don't want to have the balance sheet that is required to underwrite insurance. It's just not our business model. Um, I also have trouble thinking about uh, creating a competitive product to my biggest partners. Um, you know, am I really going to create a competitive product to Geico and Progressive and Liberty Mutual and even some of the other insure techs? Um, I scratch my head on that one. And, and then I feel like we're actually creating inherent conflict. Whereas right now, what I'm trying to do doesn't create conflict with the carriers or with, um, with our users. I like where we sit in between and we're really creating benefit for both of them. Yeah, I think of it a lot like another fintech company that had a great exit, which would be Credit Karma, where it was this marketplace for loans and credit cards and other things for individuals to go on, where it wasn't actually underwriting loans itself. Yeah, and you know, there's plenty of people that are out there trying to solve that problem uh, and make that a more efficient process. Um, I'd rather focus our efforts on, on taking that shopping experience and making it more efficient. So you mentioned some other things that you want to get into, like pet insurance. Um, I think of just since I have two pets now. Um, what sort of timelines did your users think about on that? Is that something that you're thinking about this year, or is that more of a 2022 thing? I mean, thinking, I'm always thinking about it. So the thinking <laughs> about, yes, for sure. Um, I mean, the, the short answer is I don't know. Um, most of this, I like to test my way into this stuff. So we will launch some ability for our users to have access to pet insurance this year. Um, but will it be a full-blown experience like the auto experiences? Um, really doubtful. I'd rather have our engineering resources focused on some of the things we've identified on the auto side and prove the business model for pet insurance first. And if we see that business model, as we see the, the demand for that, we understand the market a little bit better, then I'll feel better about investing resources and developing a full-blown product if we need to do that. The answer may be we can, we can actually serve our users' needs through some partnerships instead of spending our own resources on it. You know, one way that some companies have gotten additional capital lately to expand into new ideas and really talk about these you know, plans that they have more than three years down the line is uh, a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company. And I wasn't <laughs> planning on talking about this, but oh, your lovely, on, Let's talk your about lovely PR person, Danielle, said that you uh, you are not a big fan of SPACs. And I would love to know why, because, you know, there's insure tech companies or yeah. other fintechs that have gone public via this route. So well, I sh let me walk back that comment a little bit. And in, in in actually, it's not walk it back. Let me change it a little bit. What I'm not a fan of for us right now is actually being a public company. So I um, we were fortunate enough at Kayak to have Sequoia Capital was another one of our investors. They led the, the Series B. Um, and one of the investors there, Michael Moritz, was on our board. And, and, and Mike was a great advisor. And Anytime we talked about wanting to go public at Kayak, Mike used to always say, why do you want to do that? And any reason we told him why we wanted to go public, Mike would say, nope, there's an, here's the way we can handle it. You don't want to go public. Um, and so I kind of feel the same way. There, there's lots of things. I, I think being a public company sometimes can be a bright, shiny object for startups. Is kind of That can be the symbol that we made it. We took the company public. Um, and a lot of times it's forgotten about what's really takes to be a public company. I kind of equate it, I've equated it before in running a marathon where the training for it and getting ready to go public just sucks. It's a lot of work and you spend a lot of time with bankers and lawyers, no knock on bankers and lawyers, but you spend a lot of money just doing things that don't necessarily create value for the business. Um, then you also have to disclose all of that information to your competitors. 
then the moment you go public, I mean, that's fun, right? The, we got to ring the bell on NASDAQ. There was a great party. That was really exciting. So it's like when you cross the finish on a marathon, it's great. But then you wake up the next day and you're a public company and like running a marathon, you're really sore and un, unhappy then. Being a public company and managing the quarterly results and all of that, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that creates a lot of value. And sometimes I think you can make bad decisions because of it. So if there's other way for us to access capital and it gives us the ability to have more latitude in the way we operate the business, invest in growth, I'd far prefer to be a private company than a public company. So, I mean, that's my primary knock against SPACs is it's just a vehicle to go public. And I think it made it easy for a lot of companies um, that shouldn't be public companies to become public companies. And we absolutely would have been one of those. We, we were not ready, um, both from an infrastructure, from kind of the predictability of our revenue. It's just, um, I, I didn't want to be a public company. So I didn't want to take that easy path to be a public company just because we could have access to some quick capital. Um, so that's why I was so against it. Yeah. And I think you guys have, you know, with a $150 million round, like you said, it looks like you've got enough access to capital without having to do it. Yeah. I mean, it, well. it, maybe it was more work. Maybe it was less work. Maybe my valuation wasn't as high, but I, I feel like it, long term, we are much better off as a private company right now in our growth as we continue to invest in things that have longer term payoffs, gives me the latitude, gives me the flexibility to make some different decisions. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very candid in terms of what we're doing and our results, but I don't feel like I need to give my competitors an S1 that shows everything we're doing and every tidbit of our business. I, I just wish that some of these companies would go public like Stripe and obviously that's the most prevalent uh, one that I can think of because I would love to own shares of Stripe myself. I think yeah. that's the biggest reason I'm like, oh, like, I wish some of these really good companies I had this chance to get in on them earlier um, than yeah, well, some of the stuff them. trades on the secondary market. Anyway, there's lots of different ways you could do that. So there's still opportunities. That's my Mike Moritz. That, here's the way you don't have to go public to do that. There's other ways you can do it. Um, look, I want some of my competitors to go public just so I can read their S1s. That'll be great. And I'd love to see their quarterly earnings report so I continue to get insights into their business. Yeah, it's different for you than some of the other insure techs where obviously like insurance companies themselves, even when they're not public, they still have to disclose a lot of information yeah. that yeah. makes them like they are public. But someone that is just a marketplace like you, they don't have to disclose a lot of that information. Right, And it goes back to the, the comment or the question you had earlier about us underwriting insurance. Our balance sheet needs are different too. I, you know, I might look at the notion of spacking and going public very differently if I was underwriting insurance and I needed the balance sheet to support that underwriting risk. I don't need that. So I don't need access to the same amount of capital. My capital needs are really there either to grow the, the team faster, grow our marketing faster, or maybe to do an acquisition someday. But even then, you know, I can look at different ways to access the capital. So uh, so one thing I've started to like to ask people towards the end of interviews, especially when they're a CEO, founder, some other executive is if there is one company in fintech, whether public or private, that you could invest in right now and that you're most optimistic on, which one would it be? <laughs> Without not, you can't name yourself. The you Zebra, of course. Well, you know, and to be fair, I actually am an investor in the Zebra. That was the, uh, the, the one thing when I came to the company I invested in well. Um, that is such an awful question that I'm not prepared for. I, and it, That's I swear why I like is, it. Well, it's a great question, but I swear it, it, I am so uneducated and it's such a cop-out on this because... Um, and, and here's going to be my cop-out response that you're going to roll your eyes to. I really do spend all of my time focused on the Zebra and really kind of our closer-knit set of competitors. 
Um, and I, 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 I have a lot of respect for what my competitors are doing, but I want to invest in them. You know, my goal is to make sure that we, we beat them. So it's tough for me to say that I would invest in one of them. So I know you're looking kind of outside into other areas of fintech. Um, you know, I guess if I had to pick one that's out there, but you know, without knowing the valuation, I do look at Rocket um, and look at the, the scale they have, uh, what's going on in mortgage. And at least my perception is they're looking at other areas to go to in terms of extending the reach, even now that they call it Rocket Brands and getting out of the kind of just the notion of Rocket Mortgage. Um, that's an interesting one to me. But like I said, that's totally uneducated because I don't look at it and go, okay, maybe they've already got the valuation that's related to that growth or where they, they turn, you know, as an investor, you'd want to understand what the growth potential is there. I think from a solid company, um, that's one that I certainly look at. You just need to subscribe to FTT and FTT Premium and you would yeah. stay updated on the space. You'd be able to, oh, like my, the reason I can't pick one is because all these companies are doing such exciting things and everything. Yeah. Well, I also <laughs> need, I need extra capital laying around that I could invest in something. It's all tied up in the zebra right now. <laughs> well, maybe, sounds- maybe if I'd SPAC this thing already and had some access to some personal capital, then I'd be reading it. So There you go. There you go. Well, it does sound like your investment is sitting in a place where it's going to get a nice return as well at this point with a lot of momentum behind and everything as long as you guys can execute and you know the market continues working this way and whatnot so that's what i keep telling my wife so (laughs) there you go that is it for today's episode of tux time though but join me again next time and of course if you liked this episode go rate us on apple Podcasts, spotify podcast and go check out the zebra especially if you are looking for better auto insurance or home insurance thank you keith it was a pleasure having you thanks julia i appreciate it 